Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Father, as we reflect on these words, we pray that we would not easily dismiss them, brush them aside, or explain them away, that we would feel the true impact of our Lord's teaching. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And God often uses the process of preaching a sermon to sanctify the pastor. Pastors have a lot of lessons to learn, and sometimes God teaches us the hard way. That's how I felt a few Sundays ago when I had to preach about lust and adultery right before Valentine's Day. How wonderful that is. What a great blessing, Lord. Thank you so much for that. And once that was over, I thought, you know, I think I've learned something really important here, and and God, you know, has taught me. And it seems that he's not done yet, because this morning I have what I think is an even more difficult task. As we look at the world around us, we see the... uh, the aggression perpetrated in Ukraine and follow that in the news and, and are praying as people attempt to resist evil in the world. God gives me this text, do not resist the one who is evil. You imagine the temptation to take those words glibly, to, uh, to apply them in a way that belittles the reality of evil in the world. But you can equally imagine the ease with which we set words like this aside. And we tell ourselves, of course, Jesus doesn't mean this literally. He probably means just the opposite of what he seems to be saying here. And so our task this morning is to read what is always a difficult text, but at a time when I think it becomes more difficult for us, and to try to understand what it is that Jesus is teaching us, and whatever it is to listen. So we reflect on the antithesis here, Jesus' contrast between the law as we've understood it and the law as he declares it. We see that the law actually goes farther than we've realized. There's a sense in which we might say this, that the law demands proportion, but righteousness demands generosity. Take a look at the thesis here. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's some good bloodthirsty sounding Old Testament for you. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it has a great Latin name that sounds just as intimidating as the words in English. That law that Jesus is citing is what we call the lex talionis. That word talionis is Latin for talons. No, I'm kidding, it's not. Uh, But it's hard to say lex talionis without imagining your sharpened talons biting deep into the flesh of someone else. But lex talionis is law of retaliation. 
But again, in English, retaliation is not such a bad word, right? Retaliating, getting to fight back, that's inspiring. And yet, the law of retaliation is not a license for destruction. The law of retaliation is actually a counsel of proportion. It sets a limit on our ability to retaliate. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There must be a just proportion between the, the, the crime and the penalty for the crime. So while this may sound ruthless, it's actually a curb on ruthlessness. It insists on proportion. The punishment has to fit the crime, or only what is owed must be demanded as payment. So if some neighborhood hoodlums come by and knock over your mailbox for the second time, you might think to yourself, I'm going to make them wish they'd never been born. But to act on that would be a violation of the law of retaliation because it turns out knocking over your mailbox, even twice, is not the same as taking someone's life. Remember, we've seen the logic at work here already. When Jesus talks about the taking of a life unjustly renders us liable to judgment. We understand that. That's how that works. A life for a life or a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. But it has to be proportional. You can fight back, but justice demands that the force be proportional to the offense. It has to be an eye for an eye, not not uh, an eye for a life or life for an eye. You get the idea here. So what Jesus is quoting is actually common sense. It's kind of packed into our understanding of justice. But then here's the antithesis. He says, but I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. And while the Lex Talionis insists that only what is owed must be required as payment, Christ says we must give more than what is owed. Indeed, we must give everything. When they demand from you something that you do not owe, Jesus says, surrender it. And do more than that. Give them more than what they demand. He gives us four examples of this in practice, four situations where this generosity is at work. He tells us, instead of repaying insults, endure them. In fact, offer yourself up for more. In other words, turn the other cheek. When someone slaps you, when they insult you to your face, rather than retaliating and saying a slap for a slap, which is just, that's proportional. Instead, he says, turn the other cheek, which is more than just taking it. It's more than just not responding. It is an offering of yourself up for further insult. That's a kind of generosity, not the sort that we usually sympathize with. Jesus says, instead of fighting the unjust lawsuit, when someone comes to take what is not rightfully theirs, We should serve. In fact, we should serve even more, give even more. Hand over not only what is demanded, but hand over more. Not only the tunic, but the cloak as well. Whenever we are unjustly pressed into service, whenever we're forced to do something that we don't want to do, Jesus says we should do it and go the extra mile. 
give even more than what is required of us unfairly. Whenever someone comes to us demanding payment, asking for money, money that they haven't earned, that they don't deserve, they want to borrow from us, they beg from us, they should just get a job. They should work to provide for themselves. We don't owe them anything. And Jesus says, give generously to those who haven't earned it. So you see what he's doing here. There's a council of proportion of justice of paying what is owed. And Jesus instead is pushing us towards a generosity that overflows the bank of proportion. A generosity that is directed towards people who don't deserve it. Who's directed towards people who either haven't earned what they're asking for or who actually deserve the opposite. Who deserve to be slapped, not to have you turn the other cheek to them. But instead of rendering what is deserved, Jesus says, deal generously with them. In each of these cases, the righteous person does not stand on his rights and refuse to do what he is not obligated to do by the law. Instead, he answers the demands of those who do evil with generosity. Those who are breaking the law, those who are going too far in their demands are answered, not with force, but with generosity. But surely, surely Jesus doesn't intend for us to live this way. You could imagine a certain circumstance, like if it's really clear that you're being punished or persecuted specifically for your faith. If someone comes to you and, and says, I'm, I'm going to slap you right now on the right cheek. And I want it to be really clear. I'm not doing it because I dislike you. I'm doing it because you believe in Jesus. So this is literally a form of persecution. And if you need that in writing, I'll give it to you. This is definitely one of those situations where you're going to want to respond the way that Jesus says you should respond. I'm testing your faith now. Bam. And you say, ah, I really want to hit him back, but Jesus said, turn the other cheek, I'll do it. In circumstances like that, even though it can be difficult, we we rise above. We remember how Jesus would respond and we try to be Christ-like. If it's really clear, this is one of those situations where we need to be Christ-like. But usually that's not how we live. Usually when people make us unjust demands of us, we fight back. We resist. We certainly don't take it, and we don't expect anyone else to either. We say to ourselves, it has to be the case that Jesus makes some provision for us to insist on our rights. Surely we can follow the law and be righteous. We don't have to go above and beyond. We have lived by the letter of the law. The law demands proportion. I'm only insisting on what is owed. I'm only insisting on getting what is owed to me or fighting what I do not owe. Surely, I'm being a righteous person. But remember how Jesus looked at the bill of divorce as a kind of legal cover for the hardened heart? Remember the way that he talked about oaths and how people who seek to make oaths that they know are breakable? are kind of playing fast and loose. They're kind of trying to conceal, find cover for the hardness of heart. Jesus 
is giving us a call to generous non-resistance here. And as he does it, and as we struggle with it, what he's doing is he's dragging into the light the fact that we're doing the same thing as those people. That we're looking for a way to be covered by the law, to assure ourselves that when we're trying to get our own back, we're only doing what is right, and we're right to do it. Righteousness, true righteousness, requires generosity. And it requires generosity towards those who don't deserve it. It requires generosity even in the face of evil and theft and conscription and panhandling. Even in those circumstances when we feel no just obligation, in some cases feel an obligation to retaliate. Jesus counsels generosity instead. That's what righteousness looks like in real life. Generosity in the face of injustice. If you ask yourself, what does it look like to live a holy life? What would a righteous person look like? Jesus is telling us here. What a righteous person looks like is in the face of injustice, in the face of evil, he answers with generosity. So the question is, who can we resist? Who can we not resist? And how can we resist? Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. What does that mean exactly? How do we apply it? How is it applied in the New Testament? Let's look at the way that the apostles took the teaching of Jesus and sought to apply it to the church. If you look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, Paul gives us an example of how teaching like this can be applied. First Corinthians chapter 6, he's talking to the church in Corinth, a delightful church that had lots of great problems, so that Paul could write about all sorts of interesting uh, misbehavior in the church and give us instruction in what to do. One of the things that they were doing in Corinth, and, and honestly, this wasn't even in the top 10 of the bad things they were doing, but one of the things they were doing that they shouldn't have been doing is they were taking one another to court. Some person at church defrauded you, did something they shouldn't have done, and they would go to the magistrates and sue them. And so Paul, remembering what Jesus taught about that, that, that cloak and tunic situation, gives them this teaching. This is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's already a defeat for you. Here's why. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I don't know about you, but but I can think of a lot of things that I'd rather be than defrauded. I can think of a lot of things I'd rather do than suffer wrong. Paul asks these rhetorical questions as if they cannot be answered, as if the answer should be obvious. And yet I hear them and I think, well, Paul, give me some time. I can give you some reasons, man. I don't want to suffer wrong. It's bad to suffer. You shouldn't, like, seek out pain. Of course. If you allow yourself to be defrauded, you'll just be constantly exploited, and that's bad for you and bad for the world around you. And yet, he says these things as if they should be obvious to followers of Christ, that it should be obvious to us that it would be better to suffer wrong than to seek to redress it in the court, that it would be better to be defrauded 
than to bring the defrauder to the magistrate for justice. As you're thinking about that, think about these words of Paul. This is in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. We looked at this as we went through the book of Romans, but I, I feel that Jesus' teaching here gives a new context to it. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what's Paul getting at here? Well, to put it simply, people who have been forgiven live in the light of that forgiveness. People who have been forgiven live in the light of that forgiveness. Instead of policing what is owed to them, they are quick to let others have what is not owed. They don't do evil to those who deserve evil. They do good to those who are undeserving because they see themselves as undeserving people too. People who have received good from the hand of God without earning it. People who have been forgiven live in the light of forgiveness and things that make no sense to anyone else make sense to them. People who have been forgiven understand why it might be better to suffer wrong than to avenge it. People who have been forgiven understand why it might be better to allow yourself to be defrauded than to fight fire with fire. And yet, as you think about that, man, does that seem really easy to abuse. If you think about those famous words that are attributed to Edmund Burke, but probably not said by him, at least not exactly this way, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. It almost sounds like Jesus is counseling exactly that. That he's saying, the thing that makes you righteous, the thing that makes you good, is that in the face of evil, you do nothing, which is how evil wins. What are we meant to make of all this? I mentioned earlier this week, I've been following the stories about Ukraine, and, and there is definitely something about an underdog fighting in the face of overwhelming odds that is inspiring to us. We, we not only... Uh, pray for the success of such resistance, but wish we could be a part of it. One of the strange things that's been going on in the Bertrand household in the last couple of weeks, as Lori has been compulsively baking, is that she watches The Lord of the Rings over and over again while she does it, which is hard for me because as I'm working, I'm sort of flitting in and out of the kitchen. And so I come in for like like a moment, but it's hard to just leave like like right before the battle begins. You know, to leave in mid-speech, you know, you've got to stick around. And so it's been burning up a little bit of my time. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you want to rise up with Aragorn and you want to fight 
against the, the, the powers of Mordor, even if you're outnumbered, even if you don't stand a chance. You want to do something. You want to offer some resistance. And is Jesus saying we can't? Is Jesus saying it's good to let evil win in the world? Surely not. Well, there's a context in Scripture. We talked last time about reading Scripture in context. When the Bible talks about resistance, it talks about it in different ways. So let's look at the way the Bible speaks about resistance, and you'll begin to see an answer emerging. So we have our text here, Matthew 5.39, Do not resist the one who is evil. If you flip over to the book of Acts, in chapter 7, Stephen, the martyr, in his sermon before he's killed, talks about another kind of resistance. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He says it like it's a bad thing that you shouldn't be doing. In Romans nine nineteen, Paul talks about this same kind of resistance in his hypothetical question, famous question, uh, for who can resist his will? How can God find fault for who can resist his will? Paul again in Ephesians 6.13, when he talks about the whole armor of God, why are we given that armor in the first place? So that you may be able to resist. James 4, verse 7, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But then interestingly, in the next chapter, James gives us this description of a righteous person. He's he's speaking, he's rebuking the rich in this chapter. And so he talks about the, the rich and what they've done. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. How do I know he's righteous? He does not resist you. And then if you go to 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him, meaning the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I don't know about you, but it's like my head's going one way than the other. It's like, do I resist? Yes. Do I resist? No. It all depends on who we're talking about resisting. So if we take all this data, we can see where resistance is properly directed. So resistance against God is bad and futile. But resistance against Satan is good. And if the apostles can be believed, it is also effective. Yet the righteous person practices non-resistance towards those who do evil. In other words, our resistance is towards Satan, but not towards sinners. Our resistance is towards the evil one, but not towards the one who does evil. To sinners, we offer generosity in place of resistance, which is overcoming evil with good. If you ask yourself, how can good overcome evil? Part of the answer, surely, is with generosity. And we should note here that this kind of non-resistance that Jesus counsels is not a guarantee of earthly success. He's not saying that that if people are mean to you and you respond with generosity, it's going to melt their hearts. And then they too will come to love me and we'll all be happy then. Not at all. Ordinarily, responding with generosity to evil results in loss. And bearing the loss requires faith. But remember, God gave you everything that you now sacrifice. You trust him to make good the loss through restoration now or restoration in the world to come. 
But the greater the loss, the greater the faith that is required. That's how loss sanctifies. When we suffer together in faith, we draw nearer to God and rely on him more. (laughs) Which is so easy to say. And remember that what Jesus is doing here is not giving us moral prescriptions for how to live better lives. Jesus understands as he sets this standard that we will not reach it. He doesn't think you can do this. He knows that you cannot. But part of what he's doing is reminding you that the law has brought you under condemnation, that you don't do what the law requires, that you fall short and are in need of someone to do it for you said this before, but it's worth saying again that Jesus, as he paints these pictures, is painting, as it were, a portrait of himself in negative, in reverse. So as we reflect on the difficulty of this generosity in the face of evil, ultimately we're forced to meditate on the generous non-resistance of Jesus, which was always prophesied. The prophets of old, Isaiah in his servant song, said that when he comes, you will know him because he will answer evil with generosity. In Isaiah 42, 2, he says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will quote this passage specifically. And he fulfills this passage in Matthew's Gospel as well. At the end, in Matthew 27, when he's facing Pilate, one of the things that astonishes Pilate is the fact that Jesus doesn't seem to realize the jeopardy that he's in, that Jesus is not awed by Pilate's power. Pilate says, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Then Matthew says, but Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. But he wouldn't have been amazed if he'd been paying attention. If he had paid attention to what Jesus said, he would have seen that Jesus was doing exactly what Jesus said he was here to do. Jesus in John 10 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. When you consider Christ, you see a picture of the generosity that he preaches. You consider Isaiah's description of the Messiah's non-resistance, the gospel accounts of Jesus fulfilling that non-resistance. And yet you recognize Christ does resist Satan. He not only resists him, but in the temptation defeats him and throughout his ministry defeats all of his minions. And yet Jesus, towards sinners, shows generosity. And we should strive for this pattern ourselves. Jesus' life isn't taken from him unjustly. He lays it down. He gives it. He gives what is not owed. He gives more than what is demanded. He does it generously for our sake. And we should do likewise. To the extent that we can, we should follow in his footsteps. As much as we're able, as Paul says, we should live at peace with one another. But when we fall, we should repent. We should renew our gratitude for the generosity that Christ shows to us. 
When we insult him, he turns the other cheek. We take from him without deserving. He gives more to us than we demand. When we drag him along with us, he goes farther than we can take him. And when we beg from him, he lavishes grace upon us. But you cannot take anything from Jesus. But Jesus gives what he does not owe. You cannot take from him, but you can receive from him because he gives generously of all that he has of his whole self. And when you come to him and your sin, he generously gives you all things. How does good overcome evil? Jesus is the good that overcomes evil through his generosity. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.